Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Each summer for a week in July for the past 33 years, I've joined between 1,000 and 2,000 Quakers for what is called the Friends General Conference Gathering. There are so many interesting, world-healing, insightful people there, and each night there is a plenary presentation, especially highlighting the work and thought of some individual or group. The 2015 lineup was the best I've ever seen, and today's Spirit in Action guest was especially intriguing. Tyrone Lodog has an especially inspirational path, beginning with the Native American spiritual and practical wisdom of Tyrone's grandmothers, her work as an herbalist, massage therapist, and midwife, and continuing into her work as a medical doctor, expressed, naturally enough, as integrative medicine. The author of several books, including Life is Your Best Medicine and Healthy at Home, Dr. Tyrone Lodog joins us today before a live audience here at the Friends General Conference gathering held this year at Western Carolina University. Tyrone, I'm really thankful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. I feel blessed to be here. How do you relate to the name of a program called Spirit in Action? Is that something that calls you to it? Spirit, I mean, I see it deeply infused in the kind of work and thought that you do. How do you relate to the idea of spirit in action? I think that spirit is always in movement. Spirit is movement. I feel it a lot when I'm at home on my ranch. The Navajo have a word called nilch'i, which is sort of the spirit that is in the wind. And it's the way I think of spirit. I think of it constantly in movement. And it's in and around us. It flows through us. It's always there. So when I hear the word spirit in action, I think those are truthful words. Tell me about your upbringing, and particularly the glimpses I have. The thing that reverberates most clearly for me is your grandmother, because she's the one who introduced you, I think, to herbalism or to a number of herbs. Could you talk about the spiritual and herbal way that you grew up? I was very close with my both of my grandmothers, Joe and Jesse. So I was very blessed to have that strong woman nurturing spirit in my life. My grandma Jo was very close to me. She helped raise me. My mother was very ill when I was born, and so I went home with my grandmother. And I think that early imprinting really bonded us very deeply. 
She was very proud of her Indian heritage. And one of the most favorite things she loved to do was take me down to Medicine Lodge, Kansas. Uh, They lived in southwestern Kansas. And we would go over there, just the two of us, to powwows. And I remember at a very young age feeling that when the drummers were drumming and the singing was going on, that I would lose time, that hours could sometimes pass and I would not realize that it had gone. And I, I, I learned that at a very young age. And one day we were coming home in the pickup truck and my grandma, she was, she was beautiful. And she was there in her blue jeans and, you know, driving that big old pickup truck. And she says to me, you know, baby, everything you do in your life is your medicine. Everything you do in your life is your medicine. You know, when you were born, you were set on a medicine road. And everything you do, the way you eat, the way you treat other people, the thoughts that you think, the, what you hold in your heart, it's medicine, good or bad. She said, it's the way you live your life that really is going to determine how you're going to be. Well, that was really powerful. I didn't get it then because, you know, when you're a little kid, it's just like they always say these things you can't understand. I mean, they do. That's the way, that's the way elders do. They just they talk in parables and metaphors. When I was older, I really started to resonate with what she said, especially as I moved into the healing arts and watched people who didn't eat well and didn't rest and didn't care for themselves. And maybe even more than that, those who had no community, who felt so lost or detached from spirit and from any sort of larger purpose than themselves. And that's where I saw, that's where I saw people suffering. And so I think that my whole life has always been deeply drawn to being close to nature, being close to the earth, being close to spirit, being close to God. I find that when you're close to those things, when you keep them fully close in your heart, life is richer. And even when there's sadness and pain, there is not suffering. You're a medical doctor now. You weren't always. I think your training included being a massage therapist, herbalist, a midwife. I think for a midwife, maybe that kind of expression would not be terribly unusual for someone to speak like that. I'm afraid that our medical establishment does not fully respect so many of the dimensions. And so I'm really, really interested in your transition into this medical world of everything's in Latin and everything's got a formal name and there's some kind of distance that happens between doctors and their patients. I suspect you don't quite have that same distance that maybe it's different because you have to know the individual. Could you tell me how your experience of being a doctor is similar to or compares to or maybe is different than other doctors? I think doctors are like any profession. They're just made up of individuals. I think the training, medical training, has got to change. It's a lot about, you know, I remember when we, your third and fourth year medical students, you're rounding, right? So you're going and you're being immersed into these different departments, OBGYN, surgery, et cetera. And it's called pimping. And in the morning, early morning, you're sleep deprived, you get there and the attending physician will ask you, sometimes in front of the patient, but in front of all the other residents and medical students, he'll just turn to you or she will and ask you a question. And it's a question that's so hard to know. And you feel frightened that you don't know the answer, right? And so you express what you know or what you think is the answer. But it's an early form of shaming. It's a very early form of shaming that takes place. And it happens throughout your training. And so in many ways, it makes physicians afraid to say that they don't know 
which we don't. You know, we're always basically one question away from just not knowing the answer to something. But I think that it, it sets a stage. The language that we use in medicine sometimes is hard. You know, it's like in the morning after you'd admit so many patients to the hospital, you'd be turning over those patients to the next team because you would have been up for 36 hours. And the next team would say, well, how many hits did you take? How many hits did you take? Almost like patients were a body blow, right? Because however many you had was what kept you from sleeping. It's what kept you from resting. It was just the hits that you took. So there's this whole sort of culture that's been built around medicine that has moved us away from, I think, what was traditionally medicine, which was deeply caring for the individual, going to people's homes and tending them there, you know, being there for the birth, being there at their death. That's shifted a lot. And unfortunately, some disciplines like family medicine, I think there's more of this heart space in it. But I, I think that a lot of it gets pounded out of our young people when they go through their training. I went through older. I'd already had a child, had a business, I'd already had a profession. So when I went through, I was a bit older. But it's an interesting training, and it's not full of a lot of heart. I was on my surgery rotation when I was an intern, and there was a man there. His first name was Nestor. And when I went on, he was already unconscious. He'd been unconscious for quite some time. He was very bloated, fluid overloaded, all these things. And there was the discussion about whether you know, we should stop giving him assistance for living because he couldn't breathe on his own and he hadn't come to consciousness. And so my job as the intern was to find his family. So we finally did find his family and we had them come and I met with them and was explaining things to them and they felt that they should let their father go. And I asked them, I said, tell me about him. I said, I never got to meet him because when I got here, he was already unconscious. I said, but I'd love to know the man and who he was who he is. And they told me these beautiful stories. They grew up in northern New Mexico and their father used to take them fishing and he was beloved by his community and he was a wonderful father and husband. And they shared all these stories with me and I said, well, tomorrow maybe you'd like to bring some photos or if there's some music he really liked, maybe you'd like to bring some music and we can play the music. And so when they came in the morning, they had a little tape cassette, and it had some mariachi music on it that their father loved, and they asked if I would hold hands with them while they prayed, and I said, I, I would love to do that, and so we all prayed, and the nurses were so wonderful in the ICU. They turned off all the bells and whistles so there would be no sound, and he quietly passed as we prayed and listened to this music. When I left, the nurses, a couple of the nurses came up and said, you know, wow, like that never happens. And I said, what never happens? And they said, well, that, that never happens. And I didn't even understood, I didn't know what they meant. And then my dear friend who was the chief resident, she came over to me and she said, for God's sake, don't do this. I said, do what? And she goes, don't get close to these people. She said, you're going to have so many, they're going to die. You don't want to do this, Taroni. You just don't do this. And I said, I want to lean in. I don't want to distance. I want to lean in. I want to feel it all. I want to I feel it all. So, you know, there are moments that you can find that magic in any place. But I think most of it is just recognizing that we're all here as brothers and sisters just sharing with one another and 
whether you're a physician or a nurse or somebody working at Walmart or any place else, if you can hold that in your heart, if you can hold that you're here to bear witness and come alongside other people, this world would be a lot different than it is today. Taroni, I want you to be my doctor. <laughs> I, I really do think that the world would be so much better with that kind of attitude. But I also understand the difficulty. I mean, the, the person who was telling you, don't let them get close, was also concerned about the damage to your heart, the wear and tear that will be on your being. I have a stepson who is now a medical doctor, emergency room, and he's told us some about his transitions through and the something that seems almost like hazing that they go through. Actually, in Healthy at Home, you gave me a glimpse. It was in the section, it was section you were talking about PMS. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the supervising... Yes, yeah, attending physicians. Yeah, attending mm-hmm. physicians there. And mm-hmm. you said something that evidently got... Me was, in trouble. Yeah, got you in trouble. <laughs> well, actually, you, you did something and then... Yes. I guess it was a he. I'm not sure. It was. He says something, you know, are you... It's that time of the month for you. Is it that time of the month for you? And you didn't tell us what you said to him in the book, and I really wanted to know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it was interesting because we've done a lot to bring women into medicine. We've done a lot to bring women into many fields, and I think women are, are innately drawn to healing and medicine. We've been the ones that have cared for the young and the old and the sick since the beginning of time. But, you know, I had a young baby and Kara was very young at the time and I'm on call every 36 hours, you know, and I'm, so you don't go home, you don't see her, I'm pumping, I'm trying to breastfeed, you know, the whole nine yards. And I'd been on for about 40 hours with my team and the attending was a surgeon and he came and we were all ready to present so that we could go home. And then we're there waiting for him, and he shows up, and then he says, well, I'm kind of hungry. I think I'm going to get a bite to eat, and then we can do this when I'm done. And all I said was, could we maybe do it now so that those of us could go home? You know, uh, we've been up for so long. And he goes, well, low dog, yeah, maybe I'll just leave the hospital and go get myself a steak. We can round in a couple hours. And I, I looked at him, and I said, why do you have to be like that? I said, we're all working hard. We're all just doing the best we can. Why, why do you have to be like that? And he looked at me just square in front of everybody. And he goes, what's the matter, low dog? At time of the month? And I said, which I can't repeat. Um, I, I can make bleeps go out on this program. Too. It was. It would have to be bleeped because it was just two words with the second one being you. And, uh, and he said, get out of the hospital. I said, okay, and, you know, I ended up having to go and, you know, talk to the dean and the whole nine yards to get me back in there. But, you know, she said, you know, I can save you from everything but that word, you know. And I said, I want to know why you're not talking to him. I want to know why it was okay for him to use my deepest part of being a woman, my cyclicity, and use that as a weapon against me when all I did was ask a rational question about could we not just round then? So, you know, it was, uh, you know, and him and I actually became friends. <laughs> you know, we did. Um, we did because I think he had some grudging respect for me. And all of us, I think, have lots of forgiveness in our hearts. So it was like we just went on. But, but that training, I think part of it is people don't understand that that's a lot of what this training is like and this hierarchical sort of power place. 
And I'd like to say it's changing. And in some places it is, I do believe, or I hope, but it's hard because a lot of the older physicians, they went through call every other night. There's a reason it's called a residency because people were residents of the hospital. They basically lived in the hospital. So you were just on call all the time. And it's a grueling experience. And I think that there's difference if you want to create medical doctors or if you're trying to create healers, right? I mean, and there's a difference. One is, you know, it's like a doctor said to me, he said, don't ever call yourself a healer. You know, it's like you're a doctor. And I think that that's, there's some issues with the language there, right? I consider myself a teacher. And I don't believe I'm doing the healing. I believe that you're doing the healing. I believe that every single person can heal because I believe everybody is open to that healing force that can come through us. So healing is always possible. Even when you can't be cured, you can be healed. Healing is not subject to getting better. I mean, healing is much more than that. Such rich perspective you bring to it. Growing up with herbs as part of the healing, now I say that as if it's a strange thing, and I guess for the last 50, 60, 80 years maybe it is. I really have no clear idea of what medicine and healing was like before antibiotics, what, the 1940s, 1950s. I think that totally changed how medicine was approached. A number of the things that you speak of, and I've only read Healthy at Home, a number of the herbal solutions, the aids, the healthy practices in our lives, they pre-exist that. And it seems like maybe we threw away the exact base that we need to our health and have gone just to this emergency medicine, which is appropriate at times. I mean, I've had typhoid and Maybe I didn't want to take chamomile tea at that time. You know, I mean, there's there's times when you want to step up to the plate. Do you know what happened to medicine? I understand there were sulfa drugs before, but you talked about the antibiotic properties of a number of different herbs. And tell me how that happened and what happened to medicine. Well, I live rural. We have horses and chickens and dogs and cats. I mean, we treat things, you know, we're an hour from a hospital. So I find it interesting that people don't know basics how to take care of themselves for basic injuries and common problems and fevers and colds and you know things like that. In this country we created basically a patented medicine system, right? So companies that created drugs or could make drugs actually got patent protections for them. You have to remember the the pharmacopoeia of the United States, the United States pharmacopoeia, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s was mostly plants. It was almost all botanical medicines. A doctor at that time would use plant medicines. That's what was available. But as we moved forward, Merck's and Glaxo's and big companies began to make pharmaceutical drugs, they could patent their medications, their drugs, and get protection for so many years until they went generic, right? Now, we had to create a system for people to be able to get reimbursement for the research and development that they were doing for creating those drugs, right? Because it takes a lot of money and a lot of things don't pan out. The problem with that, though, was that it created a system in the United States where drugs became patented. We got really powerful heroic medicines, very powerful heroic medicines. What was more powerful than a steroid? Jeez. What's more powerful than an antibiotic? I mean, saved countless numbers of lives. So we began to rely very heavily on these drugs, and doctors and pharmaceutical companies worked very closely together to improve people's lives. We got really good at taking care of people who were having appendicitis, who were having an acute heart attack, who were got a terrible infection. 
We're really good at that, except that's not most of our problem today. Most of our problem is chronic disease. It's not acute emergency care, for which we excel at. But we're now struggling under the weight of diabetes, chronic heart disease, metabolic syndrome, obesity, rising cancers in children and adults, depression at epidemic levels, anxiety. You know, 13% of our kids have anxiety disorders. And unfortunately, our answer now is, here's the diagnosis and here's the pill. Here's the diagnosis and here's the pill. If that pill doesn't work, I have another pill I can add to it or I can increase the dose. There is no reimbursement structure for counseling. There's no, you know, up until recently, it's like I could prescribe you Zoloft or Effexor, but I couldn't send you for an hour once a week visit with a social worker or a psychologist to help you with your depression. So we've set up a structure of reimbursement healthcare delivery that is very siloed that favors drug treatment, that favors short 10 to 15 minute visits. And it is absolutely inadequate. It is absolutely inadequate to meet the needs of an increasingly elder population with complex chronic disease. If this is the best we can do for our country, we're in sad shape. You do, I think, integrative medicine. I do. And I think about the number of slots. I think we're we're adding more layers, whatever, to our medical system. There's now nurse practitioners and there's physician's assistants. There are midwives. There's midwives who have a medical degree, but there's also doulas and other folks who are part of the whole thing. So we're getting all these layers. Are those other layers at all helping? In in addition to the 15-minute visit with a psychiatrist, The fact that we have those other folks, are they actually helping take up the slack? If we can begin to integrate teams so that we work together, so that we're all working together. I've just taken on the position of fellowship director for the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine. It is the first fellowship or graduate level program that will actually train side by side, side by side, together. Nurses, pharmacists, dentists, doctors, psychologists, clinical social workers, acupuncturists, you know, everybody. Everybody will be training together because it's going to take all of us working together as a team to be able to really improve the health of our people. And that hasn't happened. Even though you have a midwife over here and you've got a psychologist over there and you've got a dietitian over there. I mean, my husband would tell you, it's like I had a woman recently and she's got metabolic syndrome, which means basically her triglycerides are going up. She's putting on weight and her blood pressure's creeping up and she's insulin resistant. So her cells are no longer being sensitive to the insulin. She's going to have diabetes in six months. So I send her to the dietitian, get a phone call. We can't see her, you know, unless she pays for her visit. Well, she doesn't have any money because she's on Medicare. And I said, well, why? No, I sent her a referral. She she needs to be seen. Well, Dr. Lodog, she doesn't have diabetes yet, which actually was she had to have the diagnosis of diabetes to actually have it covered, right, or have frank cardiac disease, which she didn't have. But we were right, you know, it's kind of like a minute before midnight. And, you know, so anyway, I could counsel her and, and did, but... I'm not the best person. I mean, I, I know nutrition, but not like a dietitian does. They, these are experts in dietetics and nutrition, and she could have done a much better job, the woman I sent her to. So yes, there's these teams of people out there, but we're going to have to be bold when we think about how are we going to educate our people and how are we going to help people take charge of their health and 
frankly, I think we need more community involvement. It's not just midwives and pharmacists and dentists. There are, you know, some of the most successful programs in other countries and including on our own reservations in the United States have been community aides and community volunteers. So you have people that are in your community that you help train, and then they go out and help care for their communities. This doesn't all have to be the most educated person in the room. There are a lot of ways for us to think more broadly about how we can improve the life and well-being of our citizens, of our people. So I'm assuming that you're probably doing that kind of work yourself. I mean, is Chiara, is she being trained? Maybe Jim knows a thing or two now, or how do you pass on that knowledge? I mean, your books is obviously one thing. And How many books do you have out now? There's Healthy at Home and there's uh, Life is Your Best Medicine. A guide to Medicinal Herbs. So that's one way of passing it on. Do you have teaching opportunities in other places? Well, the fellowship is a big one. I ran the fellowship program at the University of Arizona. I trained about 600 physicians and nurse practitioners there. They were under my watch, along with a team of very gifted faculty. So, you know, I do believe my my kids were homeschooled. So I think we've shared a lot with our children around being healthy. And certainly they know about how to use herbs. You know, it's like they will reach for echinacea before they'll reach for something else. They'll drink chamomile. Our daughter drinks a lot of skullcap. She has some bleeding issues. She has von Villebrands. And so she harvests her yarrow and keeps her yarrow because it works so well. But she has a relationship with that plant now because that's one of her medicines that she needs. So I think that for me, I think it's, As parents, we share so many of our things with our children, but I want my children to know how to cook. I want them to know how to be resilient. I want them to know how to make basic repairs. I want them to know basic medicine and when they should go to a doctor and when they don't need to go to a doctor. The average American, by the time they're 21 years old in this country, has had 17 rounds of antibiotics. 17 rounds on average for somebody who turns 21. Part of that is because every time we get a little sick, we're not sure if we should go to the doctor or not. So we end up going. And when you end up going to the doctor for everything, you end up often getting medication maybe that you didn't need. So I think a big thing is helping people. That was partly why I wrote Healthy at Home was to help people discern, okay, this is something you can treat at home. And this may be something you want to call about, or this is something you should go to an emergency room for. But our kids were mostly treated at home. I was treated at home. I mean, I remember as a kid when I got mumps, I thought it was the best thing ever because I got ice cream. Like, and we never got ice cream. So we got ice cream. It's got great medicinal properties. It does. It does. You know, it's like, it's so therapeutic. But, but you know, it's like I remember those things because a lot of us are of an age where we got measles, we got mumps. We, I mean, we had those things because the immunizations were not around. And I am in favor of immunizations, but I also realize that my children got a lot more benefit because I actually contracted those diseases and my immune system, I have so many more antibodies than you could ever get from a vaccine. So what I was able to pass to my children through my breast milk was a lot of powerful, powerful medicine. So, you know, it's, it's complicated and it's so simple. Some of us didn't have the benefit of being breastfed because, of course, that was a bad thing because you have to let the doctor take over and tell you what to do. It was a a very messy situation. You make a number of comments in Healthy at Home 
about the American fetish with cleansing, cleanliness, cleanliness. Uh, the whole wash your hands x times and doctors i think probably have to do it more than anyone else we do wash your hands every time you move explain what the issue is there now it's one thing if i'm seeing patients right i wash hands but i also love to wash my hands because that's my ritual time right every time i wash my hands i use it as a time to meditate and say a prayer so it's sort of this prayerful time for me so it's a very positive experience for me when i wash my hands but I am really like, what is it with people at home? It's they've got antibacterial soaps and their kids can't get dirty. And, you know, I consider it a great day when the kids came home full of mud, their hair messy, you know, grass stains all over their jeans. You know, I mean, those were good days. We evolved in a symbiotic relationship with the world, including the microbial world. I mean, we need microbes. We need them on our skin and in our respiratory tracts and our GI tract and our blood. We need these microbes. And this constant infatuation of using things that destroy bacteria, that kill bacteria without any thought of how do you encourage then the regrowth of these populations. I mean, we do this with farming. People just farm the heck out of the soil. There's no thoughts about microbes, the, the healthy microbes. Western civilization has had this interesting relationship with nature now for quite some time, which is control it, control nature. I mean, I see this, I've, I've seen this all of my life versus how do we learn to live in harmony with it? And ultimately we do that at our peril. You know, our daughter was born at home. People were like, you know, well, aren't you worried? I mean, like, you know, it's like it's home. It's kind of dirty. I'm like, it's home. It's dirty. She's She's going to be home, and if I had her in the hospital, she'd be home in that dirty house in 24 hours. I mean, you know, it's this whole... So for me, I, you know, yes, wash your hands, but just use regular old soap. You don't need any fancy thing. Just use regular old bar of soap, and certainly wash, but people say, I shower every day, and I'm like, you shower every day? What do you do? They're like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, are you a manual laborer? Or are you a marathon runner? Or like, why do you have to take a shower every day? And they're like, well... How often do you take a shower? And I'm like, well, if I've been out gardening really heavy and I'm filthy, I'll take a shower. Otherwise, a couple times a week. They're like, how could you just shower a couple times? And I'm like, why are you washing away all the things that are on your skin? Your skin is loaded with bacteria that keep you from getting infection. Do you know that more people die in the United States now of MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, a skin infection? More people die of MRSA now in the United States than from AIDS. That's where we I are. I know that because I read Healthy at Home <laughs> and it mentioned it. <laughs> well, I was but, paying attention. You I were. want you to know. <laughs> so so I'm, I, I, it's, not that I'm, I, it's not that I'm anti-soap or things like this. I just think that people have maybe gone overboard with cleanliness. I think that people need to wash and clearly when you're dirty, you should clean. But plain old soap and water is adequate for most tasks. And unless you're really doing things that are causing a lot of perspiration, sweating and things like that, that you feel like you need to clean for, you should stop taking so many showers. I think my wife would give you the advice that you should tell me that I should shower all the time because I do sweat a lot all the time. It's just <laughs> part of my life. Sweat, sweat is rich in something called antimicrobial peptides, and those antimicrobial peptides help prevent you from getting infections on your skin. So sweat is important. Sweat plays a healthy role in you being healthy. Does ammonia also help? That's the odor that I get when I sweat. So I, does that mean that I'm healthy or unhealthy? Is that part of those bacteria? 
I don't know the answer to that question. You know, I know that sweating is, there's a lot of things. How do you detoxify? Your body was already made to detoxify, right? Through your stool, through your urine, through your breath, and through your skin. Those are the ways we eliminate. We eliminate toxins. And that's why sweating is good. Saunas, sweat lodges, many things that people have done traditionally to make themselves sweat. Breathing in, breathing out, exercising, drinking lots of fluid to hydrate, all of these things are good. But sometimes, sometimes the sweat, the urine, other things can be indicative of maybe toxins building up in the body. Physicians of old used to, I mean, how did Hippocrates diagnose diabetes? Taste the urine, sugar urine. Diabetes mellitus. I mean, so it was sugar in the urine. It was sweet, sweet urine. That's how they knew people had this sugar disease. So we have tests now. I'm grateful I don't have to taste people's urine, frankly. But the richness of people's observations over thousands of years, this is one thing I guess I would say is I'm always constantly amazed by people who say, well, you know, yeah, but why would you use those herbs anymore? They didn't work. We have such things that are so much better or, you know, we know so much more today. And I told my kids this all the time. I'm like, you know, I would be very cautious about thinking that today, while we're living, that we're smarter than the people who built pyramids, who created aqueducts, who made buildings that still stand 2,000 years later, people who could more accurately time a year than we can today through the sophistication of their sun clocks. We have more facts today because facts build upon facts. We know more because knowledge is accumulative, but we're no more intelligent than they were. And so to think that these people did not somehow know how to take care of a fever or how to tend a wound or to heal is arrogance of the ultimate order. So I think that there's tremendous wisdom to be learned from the ancients and from elders and for all the people in our lineage. I think we have more facts and we know more things, but to just discard all of the knowledge that came before us would be absolute folly. There's a lot of wisdom coming our way here on Spirit in Action today. We're with Dr. Tarone Lodog. She's from New Mexico, and you're going to find a link to her on my website, drlodog.com. On that site, northernspiritradio.org, you'll also find 10 years of my program for free listening and download. You'll also find a place to post comments. We do love two-way communication, so when you visit, please do post a comment. There's also a place to support our work. That is how this work is undertaken with your support. It's important that you support Northern Spirit Radio But even more so, I want to recommend that you support your local community radio station. We need alternative channels of communication in this country more than ever. So please start by supporting news and music that we get nowhere else on the American airwaves. Start with your community radio station. Again, Dr. Lodog is with us here today. Tarone was an herbalist, a midwife, massage therapist. You did all of that before you became... Martial artist. That was one of Martial my, artist. That was a profound, Mar- profound for me. You didn't mention that yet in this <laughs> book. <laughs> so, yeah, martial artist before she became a medical doctor. I am a little bit curious about some of that path. Why did you decide to become a doctor? I have some theories, but you didn't explicitly tell me in the book, so I don't know. Well, in Las Cruces, New Mexico, where I was living... That community was so embracing of me. I mean, I was just so well embraced. And 
people started coming to me for all kinds of problems. I mean, coming in with fluid congestive heart failure, people coming in with horrible emphysema, people coming in really, really sick, you know? And I'd be honest, I'd like pull my little Merck manual out from behind the counter, and I'd pull it open, they'd say, I have Hashimoto's, and I'm like, well, let's read about that. And uh, <laughs> I didn't know what Hashimoto's was. I realized that People were looking to me for things I was unable to do. I didn't have that kind of medical knowledge. And so I thought, well, I'll go become a doctor. But see, I hadn't finished high school. So when I went up there to sign up to go to college, they said, well, you got to have a high school diploma. I said, for what? And they said, well, go to college. I said, oh. I was 26 years old. I was like, well, okay. So I went and took and studied for that. And then I went back up there because I had my GED. And then I said, well, I got it. She goes, well, you don't have a SAT. I said, well, now you didn't mention anything like that. I said, so what's that? And she said, well, that's a test to see if you can come here. And I said, I got to take a test. You're charging me to come here. Can I just pay? I mean, it just was foreign to me. And, uh, she said, well, you got to go take. So I studied for that, and then I took that, and then I started going to college. But it was really interesting because, uh, you know, I learned so much in medical school. I was so grateful. I just loved it. I loved undergraduate. I loved all that learning and teaching. I just was like a sponge. I just couldn't get enough, and I just was so excited for it all. And when I went to medical school, I just was like, oh, my gosh, you know, it was like, I just thought, when I learned cellular physiology, I thought I saw God. I did. I thought, my gosh, this is so sophisticated, and this is so miraculous, and this is so complex. We are just such amazing creatures. I just was like, I was just in awe all the time. And so I have no regrets whatsoever. I feel that I was called to do that journey, and I loved it. I, lo I loved it, even the hard parts of it. But now I think of myself as it's, it's kind of like being a bridge. I think I'm a bridge between people who maybe are a little skeptical about medicine, maybe that want to talk about something besides medications, you know, because I can say, well, I think maybe that drug would really be good for you, or I think there's some other things we could try before we do that. I think that I offer a, a place for people to explore what they're interested in instead of just, no, I think drugs are bad, or no, I think you're silly if you don't take them. I think that this training and the, this whole path that's led me here has been one that's allowed me to be a bridge for people. My son was born in 1986, Tarone. About a year later, he had a series of ear infections. And of course, I didn't know much about the alternatives to it. So I went in, gave him the antibiotics, try this and come back in three weeks. And oh, it's still there. Try this one. Oh, and they're more and more resistant, as you mentioned already. Right. Before we were supposed to go back, after three courses, we visited a doctor, a medical doctor who was also, I think, a homeopathist. Mm -hmm. And we went and visited. And the thing that surprised us, first of all, is he sat down for 20 minutes with us. He looked in Chris's ears, and he saw he still had the infection. Ah, oh, well. And he talked to us, and he says, well, really, the first step is, you know, there's one of two things that we're, we'd be likely to give to try this first. And given his personality, his behavior type, this is one that's more likely and it'll cost you $3 and you give him these little pellets, things, pellets <laughs> you know, three days, uh, four of those pellets. And Chris loved it. He didn't like the antibiotic goop you had to push down his throat. 
that was on a Monday, and on Thursday we went to visit his physician, and the infection was gone. And we didn't tell his medical doc, the family practice doctor, what we had done, but we were converted. And so that you know that was twenty. Why did why didn't you share? It was a choice of my wife's. So and she's my ex-wife, so I won't comment about it. Well, but I think that my experience is that many people don't disclose because they fear, again, being angered, somebody being angered or shaming them or that doesn't work. And so I was just curious because this is not uncommon. I just was curious. Right. Actually, my personality is that, of course, I would talk to him about it. And we actually did some education with hospital and other places along the way. So, for instance, we didn't have him get his, what is it, a vitamin K shot when he was born? Or was it some shot because he might vitamin get jumped? Vitamin K. We didn't have him do that. We made this agreement. We worked out with the hospital. And when he went off to be under the little sun lamp to be warm, I stayed with him. And here comes a nurse around about to give him the shot when we had made this agreement. So the medical system has its own problems because they think there's normal ways of doing things. And when you go to the abnormal, it's problems. So that kind of thing, though, an ear infection with kids. And I hear most kids get that. What's the approach if they come to you and they say, you know, ear infections, my goodness, don't we have to put in tubes? Well, the first thing is usually diet. Diet is often the first place you start. You have to remember that a little bitty child, those little eustachian tubes, these little tubes that sort of, you know, drain the ear because the ear makes fluids, right? So that's why you've got a tube. It helps equilibrate the air, but also allows things to drain. I tell parents it's kind of like a potential tube. It's like a tube that wants to be a tube. It's really, really small. It's like a a straight pin. And so it doesn't take much swelling to close it. And, of course, then when it closes, kids feel that pressure, and it feels uncomfortable, and it's painful. So dairy's often the culprit. And so we'll take them off dairy for two, three weeks, and then we have them reintroduce the dairy, right? So you take them off all the dairy, which is not easy because especially if you've got multiple kids, it means no dairy in anything, milk in a bread and cereals. It's no milk, off dairy, three weeks, two, three weeks. And then you have them give one glass of milk three times a day for about three days, and you see if the symptoms come back. And it is pretty amazing because... Not all kids, but I have to say probably about 80% of them. You take them off the dairy and then you reintroduce this milk, give them like you know, milk three times a day. Within a couple of days, they're screaming them from this ear pain again. So a lot of ear infections are not infected. It's a misnomer. They're not infected with anything. They're just pressure and they're, they're sterile. If the kid has really high symptoms of fever, you know, acute pain, things like that, I mean, if, they're, if they're, it's more severe, we may use an antibiotic. But the new guidelines for American Academy of Pediatrics is actually to wait for 48 hours to see if the infection resolves on its own because most of them do. So I tell parents, you know, most of the time we just got to work on the diet. Dairy's the first place. Soy would be next. You know, wheat. I mean, you sort of work through your list. But for most kids, it's just taking them off. It's just taking them off dairy, at least for a couple years. That usually does the trick for a lot of them. Allergies. They seem to be epidemic in our country. They are. And I don't quite understand what changed. I mean, people used to eat before, too. I mean, back in the dark ages, people ate. Did they have allergies and they just weren't treated or they're ignored, or has something actually changed? Right, so there's a lot of things that are probably leading to this increase in asthma and in allergies and allergic reactions. Part of that is that the way you come into the world has a lot to do with it, right? So we were intended to be born vaginally, and then we were intended to be breastfed. That's the way nature sort of designed it. 
about a third of babies in the United States are no longer born vaginally. They're born by C-section. Now, sometimes babies have to be born by C-section to protect mom and baby, but we overdo the C-section rate. In a healthy population, 5 to 10% of pregnancies end up in a C-section, not 35 to 50%. California, there's a lot of hospitals, 50% of the pregnancies end in C-section. So when you come through your mom's vaginal birth canal, you're ingesting all of her microbes, all of her microflora. It's just, and it's bathing urine skin, and it's bathing your mouth, and you're swallowing it and ingesting it, and that's how you're seeding your GI tract, which is sterile while you're in your mother's womb right? So it, this is how you first seed that intestinal tract. Then your mom breastfeeds you and all that bifidobacterium is stimulating the growth of these healthy bacteria. And, and, and that microbe, that ecology, that inner ecology that we have inside of us is what teaches the immune system, this is safe, this is dangerous. This is safe, this is dangerous. Imagine if you were born by C-section and then formula fed you're starting the world off in a more difficult way. You're starting it off more difficult. The, according to the uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, babies born by C-section have a much higher incidence of cow's milk allergies, respiratory allergies, asthma, and celiac disease, which we're now seeing also on the rise, gluten problems. So part of this is the way we come into the world, and then we load up kids on antibiotics. They get antibiotics every time they get any kind of minor infection as a child. So we're now further destroying these immune cells which are involved in this massive communication with the immune system and the nervous system and the GI system. You are more bacteria than you are human. There is more bacterial DNA in and on you than you have human DNA. We have this commensal, deep relationship with this microbial world that we just are oblivious to. And so for me, it's like if a mom's going to, you know, if baby has to be born by C-section, that baby should be getting probiotics for the first 12 to 24 months of their life. We had a big study done in Australia, a four-year trial, actually showed that when moms took probiotics their last five weeks of pregnancy, and then the babies got probiotics for the first six months of their life, that was it, first six months of their life, at four years of age, they had half the incidence of atopic dermatitis or eczema, which is part of this allergic triad that we talk about. So I, I think there's a lot of things going on here, but we're creating, you know, while some women will need to have their babies by C-section, a whole lot don't. And if they are getting C-sections, why are we not thinking about repopulating their colon to make sure that their whole GI tract is going to be healthy and strong? set them up for the world right. Uh, one last question, and that is, you started as herbalist. You had a whole number of people you were helping with their health, I mm -hmm. think, better yeah. life. Yeah. And then you became a doctor. Is there anything that you believed before you became a doctor that you now see was in error? Or is it only been additive? Oh, gosh. Um, an error. I'm sure there are. I think that when I was an herbalist, I had a very, very strong faith in my medicine. And I grew them, I wildcrafted them, I tasted them, I knew them, I had a relationship with them. And one of the hardest things for me was when I had to write my first prescription. I was a third year medical student and we'd seen somebody and it was supposed to write an antibiotic for amoxicillin. And my attending physician said, okay, so you know what we're gonna give? And I said, you know, amoxicillin? And he said, yes. And he said, so you know how much? And I said, yes, 500 milligrams, three, three times a day, TID. He said, yes, so go ahead and write the prescription. So I start to write it and I said, um, hmm. And he said, what's the matter? And I said, 
what exactly is amoxicillin? <laughs> and he said, what? He said, it's an antibiotic. And I said, no, but I mean, like, how do you make it? And what does it look like? And what, what is it exactly? Like, how do they, you know, and he looked at me and he goes, well, you know, I don't really know, but, but we, you know, go ahead and write the prescription. And I realized I was having this real difficulty because it was the first time in my life I was ever going to give somebody something that I hadn't actually had some sort of personal relationship with that I had never taken. I'd never had amoxicillin myself. I'm thinking, you know, what am I giving this person? Because I don't, I don't, I don't have a relationship to it. So that was an interesting experience for me. And I love the plants. Massage. I had a really difficult time in medicine trying to find ways to touch patients. <laughs> You know, they'd come in for something and the attending would say, you know, I'd be over there, put my hand on their shoulder and put the stethoscope on their chest. And he'd be like, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to do that. They just came in for whatever. And I'm like, I know, but I'm going to, you know, and then, and then I'm, and we, we walked out one day and Dr. Kaufman, my attending, he said, you know, you don't, you don't need to do that when we just go in for these kind of visits. And I looked at him and I said, I don't know when I'm supposed to touch them. And he looked at me and he said, what? I said, I... Like I'm just standing there with a notepad and I'm writing notes, but it's like, when am I, like, when am I supposed to touch them, to, to like connect with them like that? And so these were interesting experiences. I was enriched by my experience with these brilliant, brilliant physicians and amazing teachers. But I hope in some way that maybe their lives were enriched also by some country kid, herbalist, massage therapist midwife, you know, who had a different way of looking at the world too. And that maybe, maybe that that was a whole reason why we came together in that part of our journey. But it's been a beautiful journey at that. I can't believe that their lives were not enriched. I have already felt in sitting with your book, Healthy at Home, sitting with you here today, it's so obvious, as they would say in Star Wars, the force is strong in you. I really, I have this sense of the deep connection and wisdom that you carry with you from your grandmothers and forward from the doctors you've worked with. It clearly you're doing such wonderful work in the world. I'm so thankful that you took time in such a busy schedule here at the Friends General Conference gathering to sit with us. Thank you so much, Taroni. It was my pleasure. Be well. <laughs> Thank you. What a gift having Taroni Lodog here today for Spirit in Action. You can see more about Taroni via her website, drlodog.com. That's D-R-L-O-W-D-O-G.com. Or just follow the link from northernspiritradio.org. Don't forget to check out her books like Healthy at Home or Life is Your Best Medicine. I'd like to end with a song, Love is the Only Medicine, very much in tune with Taroni Lodog's healing vision, I'm sure. This is by my frequent guest, Peter Alsop. Here's Peter's song, Love is the Only Medicine, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. When you hurt, you hide it away. You carry the pain where it rains every day. Ah, so deep inside, when no one can see. When someone hurts you, you don't trust nobody. You need love. It's the only medicine. Love makes you feel better, my friend. Hey.
better, my friend. We suffer abuse from someone we love. We stay even though we know push turns to shove. We hold on too long, sustain injury. We know we should go, but sometimes we don't see we need love. It's the only medicine. for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.